Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. The event we're highlighting today is a crime that occurred in 1979. But what else happened that year? Well, China institutes the one-child-per-family rule, which is eventually loosened in 2013. The general knowledge quiz game Trivial Pursuit is launched. On February the 18th, the 1979 Daytona 500 is televised on CBS, the first ever full airing of a 500-mile race on US television. Richard Petty wins after Kale Yarborough and Donny Allison battle for first place on the final lap and crash out, leading to a fistfight. This rate brought NASCAR to a wider audience. On August the 14th, a freak storm during the Fastnet race results in the deaths of 15 sailors. On November the 30th, The Wall, a rock opera and concept album by Pink Floyd, is first released. And on December the 6th, the world premiere of Star Trek, the motion picture, is held at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. But in the summer of 1979 in the UK, prostitutes across the country were living in fear as the Yorkshire Ripper was hunting the red light districts. Then came the news that sent a chill through Bristol. Workmen had found a mutilated body buried under a pile of sand on a St Paul's building site just off Backfield. It turned out to be that of 32-year-old Wendy Jenkins. And it didn't take long for Bristol police to call in their counterparts from Yorkshire after other victims had been similarly mutilated by the serial killer, later discovered to be Peter Sutcliffe, who had already killed 11 workers at this point. Word of the Week. And for today's Word of the Week, I give you the slang term... Stella. This 70s slang was meant as an insult to disco dancers. Calling them Stella means that you think they're arrogant and full of themselves. For example, Nah, don't invite her to the party, she's totally Stella. I had personally never heard of that myself, but I quite like the name Stella. Here's some background on the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, who murdered 13 women and tried to take the lives of seven more in a six-year killing spree. He died at Her Majesty's Prison, Franklin, 
from a combination of COVID-19 and heart disease in November 2020. Sutcliffe's killing spree began in October 1975 with 28-year-old mother of four, Wilma McCann, who was hit with a hammer and stabbed 15 times. He was interviewed nine times during the course of a huge investigation, but continued to avoid arrest and was able to carry on killing. Over the next five years, Sutcliffe claimed the lives of 12 more innocent women before finally being apprehended by police in Sheffield for driving with false number plates. He was convicted in 1981 and spent three decades at the High Security Psychiatric Hospital, Broadmoor, before being moved to Her Majesty's Prison, Frankland, in 2016. Sutcliffe, a former lorry driver from Bradford, West Yorkshire, is said to have refused treatment for COVID-19 and have also been dealing with several other health problems. He was also blind and used a wheelchair. On the day of his death, West Yorkshire Police apologised for the language, tone and terminology used in the 1970s to describe some of the killer's victims. Sutcliffe was arrested on Friday, January 2nd, 1981, 46 days after the murder of Jacqueline Hill. He had just picked up 24-year-old Olivia Reavers, who was walking along Broomhill Street in Sheffield. After she got in the car, they drove half a mile to Melbourne Avenue and parked in the driveway of the Light Trades house. Sergeant Robert Ring a 26-year veteran of the South Yorkshire Police and probationary constable Robert Hydes had started their night shift at the nearby Hamilton Road police station at 10pm and had set off on a general patrol and made Melbourne Avenue one of their first patrols. At around 10.30pm they were cruising along the road when they spotted the dark, square-shaped car parked halfway up the driveway of the Light Trades house and had little doubt as to the reason why the car was there. The police did a check on the number plate and discovered they belonged to a Skoda and not a Rover. The two officers returned to Sutcliffe's car. Sergeant Ring, in his police report, which was read into the court record at Sutcliffe's trial, said... He said that she's my girlfriend and I asked what her name was. He said, I don't know. I've not known her that long. I said, who are you trying to kid? I haven't fallen off the Christmas tree. To which Sutcliffe said, I'm not suggesting you have. He then told Sutcliffe that the number plates were not for his car and removed the keys from the steering column. PC Hydes, meanwhile, had discovered that the false plates were only held on by black electrical tape. The two officers then escorted Olivia back to their police car and during this time, while sitting alone in his car, Sutcliffe immediately realised his predicament and seized the opportunity. He quickly grabbed the ball, pen, hammer and the single-bladed knife he had concealed under his car seat and headed for a stained porch by the building behind his car. Without waiting for permission, he explained he was bursting for a pee, which the police were prepared to take his word for, and headed out of view of the officers. At the porch, there was an oil storage tank for the building and Sutcliffe took both weapons and placed them onto some leaves on the ground behind the storage tank and against the wall, hoping the officers hadn't heard the clinking sound. 
he then returned to his car. Leaving Sutcliffe's rover at the scene, the officers took both Peter Sutcliffe and Olivia Rivers to the Hamilton Road police station. At the station, Sutcliffe asked to use the lavatory. There was a knife in his jacket pocket, which was accessible through a hole in the pocket. As he later told police... I went to the toilet straight away, as soon as I got to the police station. I dropped the knife in the top of the water system so it wouldn't be found in my possession. Still in the pocket of his jacket was a length of rope, the same one he had used in the strangulation of Marguerite Walls and in the attempted strangulation of Opada Bandera. He admitted to being Peter Sutcliffe of 6 Garden Lane, Bradford, as well as admitting he had stolen the number plates because in less than two weeks he was due in court on a drunk driving charge. He said, The insurance had just run out. And I knew I were about to lose my licence in court, so we weren't worth renewing it. By 2.30am, Sutcliffe was asleep in his cell. I just went to sleep, I did. I felt like always that I'd get out of this one if I wanted to. I could convince them it was just theft. I was still being fed instructions as to how I could go about my mission. Although I'd been prevented from killing that girl in the car. Following a very, very lengthy interrogation, Sutcliffe admitted... It's 12... Not 11. Just thinking about them all reminds me of what a monster I am. I know I would have gone on and on, but... Now I'm glad I've been caught. I just... I just want to unload the burden. All in all, it would take 15 hours and 45 minutes to dictate a detailed statement. This original confession, however, did not contain the full catalogue of 20 attacks that he was eventually charged with. Once the news was out about the discovery of Wendy's body, straight away, Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson, who was leading the search for the Yorkshire Ripper, was clear he would be speaking to Bristol's finest about the murder. And within a few days, he travelled to Bristol to find out if Wendy's death was the work of the Ripper, who was thought at the time to have claimed as many as 11 victims, and had threatened to strike again. When the Bristol investigation began, little details were known, as police sealed off the area and detectives began hunting for clues. It was discovered during the post-mortem that Wendy, who lived in Eccleston House in Barton Hill, had sustained head injuries, but it was unclear exactly how long ago her body had been dumped between the two new warehouses. She was found at around 8.30am on Tuesday, August 28th, 1979, by labourer Dennis Winterfield, aged 22, shortly after he had started work at the site, but the sand had been delivered the Friday before. Another labourer, Richard Blackford, aged 20, found what turned out to be a major clue in the investigation. He discovered a handbag, shoes, a coat and nylons in an alley on the side of one of the new warehouses and left of the property. It was in a hole covered with rubble. I thought nothing more of it at the time, said Blankford to the Bristol Post at the time of the discovery. Now it all seems to fit into place. The fear was tangible on the streets of Bristol as the horrific murder sent shockwaves through the working girls in the area. One told the Post... We are petrified. He must be a raving maniac. We're scared he may do it again. 
a lot of us are carrying knives for protection, but they may not be much good if we're attacked. We take a risk every time we go with a customer. We don't know what he's going to be like, but maybe the killer wasn't a customer. (laughs) Word on the street. This week, we're going on a gentle stroll down Soundwell Road in BS16. The word Soundwell is derived from Sundwell. Sund meaning healthy, therefore a spring with beneficial properties. A general purpose healing well once stood on this spot. And there are three other wells locally, Hopewell, Wishwell and Speedwell, all traditionally visited on the morning of the 1st of May. Another sex worker, Maureen, who was aged in her 30s, said, although girls were scared, the brutal murder would not affect them going out to work because they all needed the money. She said Wendy was a really nice girl and a lot of the women were not terrified. As detectives travelled from Yorkshire, those in Bristol started putting more information together. Detective Superintendent Alan Elliott, who was leading the Bristol hunt, said in the days after Wendy's body was found, We have to maintain an open mind, and a connection with the Ripper cannot be ruled out. However, there are certain features common to all to the Yorkshire offences which don't appear in the Bristol offence. Officers were concentrating on trying to track down Wendy's last known movements. Witnesses said she'd been drinking in the Inkerman pub on Grosvenor Road on the Saturday night before going into the Shady Grove nightclub in Ashley Road, leaving there at about 11.30 and never returning. Witness Stephen James, a 21-year-old unemployed bookbinder, whose flat overlooked the murder scene on City Road, told the Bristol Post how he looked out of his window after hearing screams. He said he then saw a white Volvo car with just one rear light working in Backfields Lane, just 100 yards from where her body was found at around 10.30pm on the Sunday. Fellow sex workers said they believed Wendy had been taking clients to the building and said that she had only started working in the industry as she was short of money. Meanwhile, her stepfather, Reg Hoskins, aged 65, who she lived with in Barton Hill, revealed she had been living in fear, previously beaten up and threatened. He told how Wendy and her mum had gone to St Paul's to visit friends. Apparently, they met a man and there was a terrible argument, he later told the Bristol Post. I never saw Wendy again. Whatever Wendy was, she didn't deserve to die like this. She may have gone with men, but she never brought any home here. She knew I wouldn't have stood for that.
In the days after the tragedy, police put out appeals for any information on Wendy's whereabouts that weekend. Detective Superintendent Elliot also warned women not to take unnecessary risks. Prostitutes are always exposed to danger, but there must be an even greater danger as long as the man responsible for the murder is still at large. Police continued trying to speak to Wendy's friends and ex-boyfriends in an investigation which had taken them to Wiltshire, Devon, London and Gloucestershire. The Sunderland police even went around housing estates with a mobile caravan to play a tape of the killer's voice to residents. The hunt for the killer concentrated on Wearside, on the northeast side of England, as that was where he had earlier sent the police a tape. The voice on the tape had a Wearside accent, and police believe he came from that area. The Yorkshire Ripper was eventually crossed off the suspect list, as detectives said they strongly believed that Wendy's killer was from Bristol. During the investigation, yet another witness came forward who was thought to have been the last person to see Wendy alive. He claimed he had seen her talking to a tidily dressed man, aged in his 30s, on the corner of Drummond Road and City Road at around 5.30am on Bank Holiday Monday, and police believed Wendy was murdered shortly after. He was described by police at the time as being dark-skinned about five foot eight inches tall, with shortish hair. Officers began house-to-house inquiries in the area and said they were plugging away with the investigation. And very soon, the murder squad were about to strike. A 50-strong team were targeting all the men who picked up prostitutes in the St Paul's area on the night she was brutally killed. Detective Superintendent Elliot put out a stark warning to the men. We know who they are and so do they. He said he would save the men the embarrassment of calling at their homes and confidence would be maintained if they came forward. Otherwise, we will have to knock at their doors, he added. This stance followed a sweep operation of pubs, clubs and cafes. They were still looking for the mystery well-dressed man seen talking to Wendy while she was rather the worse for drink, police said. Another appeal went out for another vehicle, an orange or red-coloured Hillman Minx or Hunter estate. Two years after Wendy's murder, the Yorkshire Ripper Sutcliffe was convicted of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder another seven in the Leeds and Bradford areas, ending a five-year murder spree. And although the detectives on the case discounted Sutcliffe, Many true crime historians believe that he did murder Wendy. Why? Well, the reasons are as follows. 1. Sutcliffe had been to Bristol in connection with buying a car. 2. He was often mistaken for a dark-skinned man at night because of his dark complexion and curly hair. 3. Sutcliffe fits the witness description. He was a smart dresser. His height was between 5'7 and 5'9 and he was aged 33 in 1979. Number four, Wendy was a prostitute which fitted Sutcliffe's victim preferences. He used multiple red light districts. Number five, Sutcliffe enjoyed driving and traveled long distances. 
He used the motorways to attack in different cities and liked to have a clear exit route to a motorway. And when looking at a map, you can see that the abduction point at the junction of City Road and Drummond Road is about seven minutes drive from the beginning of the M32, which heads northeast eventually to the M1 and Bradford. And lastly, number six, there is no evidence that the murderer was a local man. The Yorkshire Ripper was considered as a suspect at the time, and detectives from West Yorkshire Police working on the Ripper inquiry visited Bristol to confer with their colleagues from Avon and Somerset Police. But Sutcliffe was eliminated. This may have been because at the time, the criteria devised by Superintendent Charlesworth were unreliable and too restrictive. To be classed as a ripper attack, the attack had to be made with a hammer. So having stab wounds may have been enough to eliminate the ripper as a suspect, although he had stabbed Deborah Schlesinger to death on the 21st of April 1977. When Sutcliffe was arrested in 1981, he was in possession of two knives, a hammer and a ligature. Sadly, Bristol police never managed to catch Wendy's killer, and nearly 40 years later, he remains out there. Detectives from Bristol have not given up bringing her killer to justice, though, and it remains one of the 26 unsolved murders from around the city that is still on the police's books. Anyone with information about Wendy's murder can still come forward, contacting police on 101, asking to speak to Detective Sergeant Pete Frake in the Major Crime Review Team. Hey, hey! Are you that weird one in your friends group that loves to watch true crime documentaries? Have you ever wanted to learn more about the lesser known crimes? And are you fascinated with ghost stories? I'm Hannah, the creator, editor, and host of Murder Bucket, a podcast that talks about, get this, murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Join me every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts to get the inside scoop on some of the most interesting topics in the true crime world. I am also very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram at MurdBucket, Facebook at BucketMurd, and Twitter at the murder bucket. Boffins here at Bristol Labs have discovered that a sad cup of coffee is called a depresso. Back in the day facts. start with the 18th of June 1815, when Napoleon and France were defeated by British forces under Wellington and Prussian troops under Blucher in the Battle of Waterloo. Also on the 18th of June, but in 1912, King George V and Queen Mary officially opened the King Edward VII Memorial Infirmary on Lower Magdalen Street in Bristol. On the 19th of June 1829, Robert Peel introduces the Metropolitan Police Act 1829 into Parliament to establish a unified police force for London. 
the world's first modern police force. Peel served twice as Prime Minister of Britain and is widely regarded as the father of modern British policing and as one of the founders of the modern Conservative Party. He's immortalised by the affectionate slang expression Bobby and Peeler due to his creating the modern concept of the police force whilst Home Secretary. The 19th of June 1865 is seen as a day of the emancipation of African Americans from slavery in the US. It's celebrated on June the 19th because that's the date in 1865 that Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army landed in Galveston, Texas and informed slaves that the Civil War had ended and slavery had been abolished. Granger and roughly 2,000 Union soldiers were there to enforce President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had actually gone into effect more than two years earlier, on January 1st, 1863. In fact, Lincoln himself had been assassinated a few months earlier, in April 1865. However, the more than 250,000 slaves in Texas were still shocked to hear the, by then, years-old news that they were free, according to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. In June 2020, President Joe Biden signed a bill that officially establishes Juneteenth, a 156-year-old holiday celebrating the emancipation of African Americans from slavery in the US as a federal holiday. Biden's signing of the bill, which quickly worked its way through Congress, comes at a time when Juneteenth has been in the news more than any point in the past century and a half. On the 20th of June, 1837, Queen Victoria at 18 ascends to the British throne following the death of Uncle King George IV. She rules for 63 years till 1901. On the 21st of June, 1831, the foundation stone of the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol is laid on the Clifton side, watched by Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And lastly, on the 23rd of June, 1979, My Sharona, the single by the knack, is released. Well, I fear that's the end of today's show. But don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. And as for those who really brought today's story to life, well, this week we have Colin Ball, Carrie Ball, Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd and Simon Green from Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. You're fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. 
You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.